Good morning. This is lesson 19, if you can believe it, in our series on the Gospel of Mark, and I call it the Divorce Debate. It is a distressing day when you think about the statistics related to divorce. I went back and I looked at a 1975 sermon by uh, Ray Steadman, one of my favorite preachers from a day gone by now. And uh, he was preaching on Mark chapter 10, and he was bemoaning the rate of divorce. So I went out, and you can see that chart in my fine piece of artwork there. I still can't draw straight lines with a mouse. But uh, you'll see that I marked basically 1975 on that chart. And my reason for doing so is if he thought it was bad in his day, it just keeps going up. And and the reality is that there's actually more distress than that. This is a, is really a count of the number of divorces, and uh, you have to say several things. One is that a lot of people are living together today who aren't married, and so you don't have divorce when you don't have marriage. So the numbers are probably far more distressing than what we really would wish to know. And then to add to all that, you get a statement uh, like we saw in the last several weeks by Pat Robertson uh, indicating that somehow Alzheimer's was now some uh, uh, cause for setting aside your marriage vows. And I I don't think I need to comment on that. Uh, And if he thought about it, I suspect he would like to rescind his, his remarks. But the sad part of it is that today there is very little difference in the church and in the outside secular society when it comes to divorce. It seems like the church does not stand apart. When I come to this text, I I have to say, I I feel some tension. Um, I know there are people here who have been deeply hurt by divorce. And I'm not here to to rub salt in in any wounds, but hopefully to give words of encouragement and hope. On the other side of that coin, the biggest side of it, I'm here to proclaim God's word. And I, I, I don't have the option of going soft on what Jesus says about divorce. And so I've got to hold the lines that he has drawn. The other thing that bothers me is, is that sometimes there is, in a message like this, where it's somewhat focused on a particular problem, and therefore some may think in a particular group, uh, there, there may be those who are sitting kind of smugly in their seats and saying, whew, <laughs> good deal, one week where you're going to pass me by and I don't get whacked for something that uh, I'm doing wrong. I want to say that there are a lot of people who haven't divorced whose marriages are far from the standard God has set. And so if you're feeling comfortable, get over it. Uh, Because this text isn't here to make you feel comfortable about a bad uh, marriage. The other thing is that as I come to this text... We are dealing with a specific issue, but there is a problem. There is a root problem with Pharisaism, which is far more broad than just the issue of divorce. And I want to get to that 
and I want to help us see what they were doing wrong and how that may relate to us as well. So let's set the stage, uh, if we can, a little bit in terms of where we're going. First question, why here? That is, why beyond the Jordan? You'll notice in chapter 10 that Jesus has now moved from Galilee to beyond the Jordan to Judea. And, of course, he is on his way toward Jerusalem and ultimately toward his death. My take on it is this. When you look at the expression beyond the Jordan, and I gave you those three uh, instances that it's found in uh, John, in the Gospel of John, beyond the Jordan is John the Baptist's turf. This is where John ministered. Now, to push that just one step further, (laughs) because it's John's turf, it brings to mind John's fate. John preached on divorce, and it didn't go well. Would you agree? This is <laughs> this brings up memories of, hmm, this is not a subject that I really am eager to get into too deep. Uh, it put him on the outs with Herod and ultimately cost him his head. Why now? Why the issue of divorce brought up now? Well, the Pharisees simply cannot ignore Jesus. You remember when when uh, Jesus raised Lazarus, basically not only the Pharisees, but all of the religious leaders got together and they said, we cannot let this go any further. This is just getting out of control. If we don't deal with him now, we're going to lose it. And so we have got to act uh, Jesus is is headed for Jerusalem, and notice that he is repeatedly, I underscore that word in my notes, repeatedly drawing large crowds. It says he once more, or some texts say again, began to teach them. So as I read this text, what it's saying is everywhere that Jesus went beyond the Jordan, a crowd, a large crowd gathered. Now that ought not to come to us as any great surprise, should it? that a great crowd would come to hear Jesus, and that Jesus would teach them. Matthew says that he healed as well. But the reality is Jesus was teaching. He is gaining popularity of the Pharisees saying, this does not bode well. For us, this is not good. So now it's now, you might say, or never for the Pharisees. Why the Pharisees? Why are they the ones that feel the necessity of raising this question uh, with Jesus at this point in time? If you look at an early portion of our Lord's ministry, and I'm assuming that Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount is sort of the initial throwing down of the gauntlet of the differences between Jesus and, and the Pharisees, then you'll notice a couple of things. In that early confrontation, Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. (laughs) Well, that doesn't look too good for Pharisees. And then, as he's working his way through this Sermon on the Mount, he says, uh, and it was said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of dismissal. But I say, in other words, Jesus is saying, here's what Pharisaism teaches on divorce. They're wrong. Here's what I have to teach on divorce. 
So Jesus has taken these fellows on early on in his ministry, and they know that it is time for them to get into the attack mode or they are in trouble. When you look then in Luke chapter 16, in verses 14 through 18, one of my mind-stretching, long-term agonizing passages, you have the first part of Luke 16 is the shrewd steward, the guy who knows his job is going to end. He doesn't know what he's going to do. He hasn't been on Social Security, or he lives in a country like ours where you don't know if you're going to have it anyway. And so he's saying, i got to do something about the future. And that's when he settles up with his uh, master's debtors and prepares a place for him uh, in the future. The latter part of Luke 16 is the parable of the rich man and, uh, and Lazarus. And so it's a money text. But right in the middle of that, he has that strange comment uh, about divorce. And it's aimed, in my opinion, right at the Pharisees. Because verse 14 says, the Pharisees were lovers of money and they scoffed at him. So Jesus is going to speak to them directly about money. And then all of a sudden there's this jab right at the end in verse 18. And he sort of says, oh, and by the way, let's talk about divorce while we're at it. Two shots at the Pharisees. They don't think they can let that go. And if you think it's not got bad enough, they know it's getting worse. Matthew chapter 23 is coming, and you know that woe to you, right? Pharisees, hypocrites. Woo! He's going to cook those guys, and they are trying to get their shots in early. So, in setting the stage, what do we know about Pharisees? Well, we know a lot of things, but I want to just draw a few out which I think are pertinent to our discussion. One is the Pharisees are the religious conservatives. Would you not agree? They're the John Birch Society of Judaism. They're, they're the, the right-wing conservatives who are holding the line. I don't mean that in any demeaning way. I'm just saying, here they are. They're over on the right side. I don't know of anybody who's further to the right than they are within Judaism. And uh, you see that in Acts 23, verses 6 through 10. You remember that, one, they believed in angels, and two, they believed in resurrection. Sadducees did not. So when Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin and he knows, in a sense, that the jury is rigged, he, he, he decides, that he'll use another tag, he says, I'm a Pharisee, I believe in the resurrection of the dead. And all of a sudden that place splits. And the Pharisees say, well, we do too. He could be right. And the Sadducees are saying, no way. And it's all over in the Sanhedrin because of that issue. They are the conservatives. Uh, they are the one whose daughters we would like our sons to meet. They are the purists, and I mean by that the separatists, who want to keep holy by staying separate from sinners. And that is why you see in, in uh, Mark chapter 16, uh, 2 verse 16, Jesus, when he is eating with the sinners, remember he calls Matthew and then they have this banquet and whatever and they're saying, why does Jesus associate with sinners? Luke chapter 7 is this sinful woman who's washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Why does Jesus associate with sinners? The purists can't imagine that. 
They're the tradition makers and tradition keepers. So they wonder why Jesus' disciples aren't fasting like John the Baptist's or theirs. And they wonder why the disciples of Jesus aren't washing their hands in that ceremonial fashion that had been prescribed by them. They are the Sabbath keepers par excellence. Are they not? Oh, the Sabbath's a big one. And by the way, that's a great place for somebody who is an enemy of Jesus to pitch their tent because the punishment for, for Sabbath breaking was death. Hey, you get him on that one. You got it. But uh, they had a little trouble with it. Sabbath keepers. So they criticized Jesus' disciples for harvesting grain, walking along, plucking off a head of grain, popping it in your mouth. Mm-mm, that's not permissible in their minds. Or when Jesus heals the man with a withered hand in uh, Mark chapter 3, they decide and collaborate, remember, to put Jesus to death. But they're also the hypocrites. They're the ones who want to have a good impression, a good outside appearance, but the inside is rotten. As I've used the expression of one of my friends, it's like a three-quarter inch snowfall in a garbage dump. It looks really good until you start pawing around a little bit and then you discover it isn't. And they're at the heart of the divorce issue. I, I see the Pharisees as having this as one of the planks in their political platform. Now, that's hard for us to get our arms around, but I believe it's true. I believe when you look at the text in Luke chapter 16 and the passage in Matthew chapter 5, for example, you see Jesus taking on the teaching on divorce and he is taking on the Pharisees. As conservative as these guys look... I think they have a very liberal policy on divorce in terms of its outworkings. We'll come back to that uh, in a minute. Well, Jesus is going to ask the question when the divorce issue is raised. He's going to ask the question, well, what does Moses have to say about this? What does the law say? What does God command you regarding that? And it's a text that nobody actually read or cited like they do some of the Ten Commandments, but it's obviously the text that's in view. And so I want to look at that for one moment, if I can, in Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. I really do not want to get into the issue of remarriage too much, but I would say this. Whenever Jesus talks about divorce... It assumes remarriage. Every time Jesus talks about divorce, it assumes remarriage. I take from that that if a divorce is legitimate, then remarriage is legitimate. If it's not, then obviously remarriage is not legitimate either. And in this case, you'll notice, well, let's start it out. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from her house. And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. If that man divorces her, verses 3 and 4, divorces her or he dies, she cannot go back to her first husband. What What the law is saying is divorce is permanent. Marriage is permanent, but divorce is permanent once 
one of the parties has remarried, they can never go back to that initial marriage relationship according to the law. But the key issue here is the matter of indecency. What is it that is being said here that is a matter of indecency that becomes the basis for a writ of divorce? Now, I have to say that the word, by the way, it's not a really common word, but the word uh, is has a certain breadth to it. And, and I think most of us, when, when many people are talking about divorce and, and, and its consequences, they use the word adultery. Jesus says when somebody divorces and remarries, I assume, without being in the, in the exception clause, they are committing adultery. Adultery is a specific sexual sin between one married person and another. That's, that's specific. You can get your arms around it. But when you come to the New Testament word, porneia, or when you come to this Old Testament word, it's a broader word, and that gives you a certain range. It needs to be that. Trust me. Just think about it for a minute, friends. Think about heinous sexual sins. How many pages do you want to read on that? I don't want, I don't want to hear them. I don't want to know and, and review in my mind all of the various forms in which that sin may take. When you have one word that encompasses all of those heinous sexual sins in one word, I'll stick with that word. The danger of that is somebody will try and stretch that word out, and that's exactly what's happened. They stretch this word indecency out to where it simply means for some, hey, I'm tired of, I don't like the way my wife fixes breakfast or what you, you name it. Then that's, that's where it goes to its illogical extreme. Now, look with me over at verse 14 of Deuteronomy 23. What does this word rendered indecency, what does that mean, uh, in terms of definition? So at verse uh, 13 of Deuteronomy 23, it's talking about what you do in the middle of the desert when you don't have rest stops and rest rooms. The bottom line is you carry a shovel. I mean, now just think about the logistics, uh, if you would, sanitation-wise, of a million or more people in, in one fairly concentrated area if they don't take some care about waste, human waste. So it's saying they need to do that. And then it says, since the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and defeat your enemies before you, therefore your camp must be holy and he must not see anything indecent among you, lest he turn away from you. So whatever this matter of indecency is, friends, it is an indecency that offends God. Would you agree? It's an indecency that offends God, not man, but God. Man ought to reflect God's offense at that sin, but it is God who takes the offense in this, and it is indecent to him. Now, when you go back to Leviticus chapter 18 and read through that, you will discover that God gives some very specific commands to the Israelites, especially regarding sexual morality or immorality, and one of the things that I think is very clear is the reason why God expelled the Canaanites and uh, 
The reason why God called for the annihilation of the Canaanites was that culture was so corrupt in terms of its sexuality and its morality that it had to be buried. I don't even want to go into the degree, but if you read what what things God says, even the animals are being put to death, then you get a sense of how bad it was. And God says, that's why I sent them out. Can you understand why God would say to the Israelites, if these sins begin to crop up in your community, well, one, probably the death penalty would be appropriate. And it would seem in this context that a divorce may be necessitated because of the degree of depravity and corruption that takes place. But this is the text, in my opinion, that was being abused uh, when you look at the New Testament passages. Uh, what do we learn from the parallel texts in, in the uh, Gospels? Let me just say a couple of words about that. A, there are four passages, four passages. Now, I, I really don't want to get on a soapbox, but, but I, I love and, ex- and respect John Piper. But when John Piper says there's only two passages in all of the Bible that give the exception clause, <laughs> there's only four that talk about it. So it's not as though, you know, it's some rare and strange thing. God does not want to make the exception the rule. And so the exception is clearly stated in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19. It's not stated elsewhere. And the reason is God wants us to understand what the rule is, not always focus on the exceptions. Okay. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. I think you see the core here of what Pharisaism did with divorce. You want to uh, divorce your wife, you have a matter of, of, of unpleasantness that you don't like about her, write her a certificate of divorce. When I was in, in college and I was thinking about um, law, uh, I got over that quickly, but when I, when I was thinking about the possibility of law, they talked about two kinds of justice, procedural and substantive. Procedure means you go through the right motions. You file the right papers and, and, and all of that. Substantive justice means when all is said and done, justice was really executed. Now, would you not agree with me? We live in a day of procedural justice. But how many times has somebody walked or whatever because some little technicality was was overlooked? And I'm not saying we ought to overlook technicalities. But somehow, you know, we've made procedure king, not substance. And that's that's a very thing, a key thing. And when, by the way, we do that, our laws get more and more technical, not less and less. And, and that's one of the problems here with divorce. Anyway, you see, I think, the classic pharisaical view uh, here in Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew chapter 19, the key is, one, that it actually says, can a man divorce his wife for any cause at all? So when you look at Deuteronomy 24... That's a pretty narrow range of what falls within legitimate divorce where it's permitted. When you see this, it's like Katie bar the door, you know, whatever you want. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause at all? Jesus slams that door and he slams it so hard the disciples said, Wow, Jesus, do you know what you just said? 
It ought to be better for a man not to marry if what you said is true. And Jesus didn't say, oh, guys, I, I was only hyperbole. I, I was just trying to make a point, but to, don't take it that far. He said, you're right on. In fact, some people were born like eunuchs. Some people were made eunuchs involuntarily by other men. And some people have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. That's how seriously I'm talking. I'm not saying do it. He's simply saying, don't misunderstand me. It is serious business. Marriage is a permanent thing. In Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18, as I said, a strange comment that comes in the midst of a discussion about money and a rebuke of the Pharisees for their externalism, key uh, emphasis on appearances, And then that one verse, verse 18, where all of a sudden, wham, he says to them, you can't put away one stroke or one letter of the law. And by the way, verse 18, here's one that you can't do that with, and that is divorce, which I think they obviously had. All right, folks. I'm going to I'm going to step off the old plank into the water here because I'm going to tell you something I don't know anywhere else you'll find it and that probably tells you all you need to know. But I have a I have a thing as you know about external biblical evidence. That is evidence that somebody thinks is key to the interpretation of a biblical text but it's not in the Bible. I have problems with that stuff. Illustration fine interpretation, I'm not getting on that boat. And here you have virtually every conservative preacher almost always goes to the two schools of thought within Pharisaism. The school of Hillel, the liberal school, any cause, whatever. The school of Shammai. No, sir, it has to be really narrowed down. Okay, it's not in the Bible, folks. Those guys are not in the Bible. And I don't need external stuff to be the key to understanding what Jesus says. But the thing I don't like about this is they're sort of trying to put Jesus in the middle of this fight. And so here's the liberal view, here's the conservative view, and these guys are sort of jockeying around to put Jesus somewhere in the middle and make him feel awkward. It isn't that way at all. It's Jesus here, everybody else there, including the disciples. Is that not right? When you read Matthew 19, it's like, wow, I never heard this before. It wasn't they sit around and say, well, this is a school of thought and that school of thought. I sort of lean this way or that way. Jesus is saying, here it is, guys, like it or not, everybody else is wrong. So I'm not going down the Shammai Hillel trail and... and, uh, that's just me. All right, so here's my approach. I want to know when the, the issue of divorce arises. What is Jesus' approach to answering the question? In other words, how does he go about finding or arriving at his answer? That's method. Then I want to say, what was his conclusion given that method? What did Jesus say about divorce given that method? And then I want to go down this trail of why in the world did the Pharisees, these guys who were so conservative, get so far off the trail when it came to divorce? And the last point is, so what does that teach me 
that I may need to learn. If these guys are the hyper-conservatives of their day and they went way off the trail, then we're conservative too, folks, and maybe we have some of the same dangers. Okay, how did Jesus approach the issue of divorce and remarriage? Number one, Jesus keeps it simple. Now, I know that all things in life are not simple. I understand that. Sin is a messy, messy thing. But, you know, I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, you know, that is a very complicated issue. And you know what that being translated means? Who knows what the answer is, right? Complicated means, gee whiz, I just don't know how I'm going to come out or how one can come out about that or, gee, there'll be different opinions about that. Well, Jesus keeps it really simple. He doesn't say it's a complex issue. And by the way, he doesn't go everywhere he could go in the Bible to talk about divorce. He goes to the scriptures, number one, not Jewish tradition, not Shammai, not Hillel, not Pharisaism of that day. He goes to scripture. That's where the answer is to be found. And he goes back to the beginning. I've got a note here because I have to make a confession right here. Back to the beginning. When Jesus goes to Scripture, he goes to Scripture in the first reference. Now, back on Labor Day, I made a comment about labor being, in a sense, a curse. I goofed. Labor was a curse in Genesis 3. It wasn't a curse in Genesis 1 or 2, right? If I were going to follow my own practice, I would also say marriage is a curse. All I'd have to do is go to Genesis chapter 3. <laughs> marriage isn't a curse. Marriage is a blessing. No, it's fallen under some of the ramifications of the curse, but that's not saying the same thing. So Jesus goes back to the very beginning and he says, look, if you want to see this thing the way it's supposed to be seen, you've got to go back to the start. And the start is when God created man and woman and brought them together as husband and wife. So here's the uh, foundation, the nature of and nature and purpose of marriage. God created male and female. <laughs> Does that have any implications today? I think we're getting down to some turf here. Male and female, God joined them together. They left their parental relationships and entered into a permanent marriage relationship. They became one flesh, right? Okay, that's the foundational uh, platform on which I think everything else is built. They became one flesh permanently. So here's my definition. Congress needs to listen up. Marriage, therefore, is the divinely designed unity of one male and one female for life. Now, it's not complex. It's simple once we go back and see what God created. So what's Jesus' position on divorce and remarriage? 
All right, let's just sum it up. <laughs> and again, Jesus really just says what God said. Now, you could say, okay, it's Moses who said it. Would you not agree with me when it says, whatever God has joined together, let not man separate? It, it seems to me that it's clear that Moses is speaking for God. And that's the end of it. That's the end of it. Whatever God joins together, man had better not separate. Now, that's very interesting because if man, including the Pharisees, if man is seeking to separate what God has brought together, then man is now fighting God. Whether that's Pharisee man or whoever it is, man is fighting God if he goes against the grain of what God has designed and what God has said. What God has joined, let no man separate. So, here are the things that kind of flow out of that. Marriage is to be defined and regulated by Scripture, not culture, not tradition. We don't look at the culture of the day and say, what does our culture say we ought to do? The sad thing is, most Christians are doing exactly that. They're looking around, they're seeing what's acceptable, and they're living within uh, those parameters. Divorce is not God's original design or intent. Would you not agree with me? If you're back in Genesis chapter 2, divorce was not in the picture. God didn't say, whatever God has joined together, let not man separate except for a few, and, and, and on you go. No, it's not in the original design or intent. Lifetime unity is, oneness is. D, divorce is never God's ideal. I'll say that again, folks. Divorce is never God's ideal. I don't know of anyone who has ever undergone a divorce who has said, I recommend it highly to everybody. It's really, it's really where it's at. It isn't. It is not the ideal. It was not the ideal then, and it is not the ideal now. And Jesus makes that very clear. Divorce is occasioned by sin, the hardness of your heart. Now, here's the thing. I got to looking at that. Jesus is talking to Pharisees. And he says, it is because of your hardness of heart. I, I think that that's not so generic. I, mean, I know it's true generically, and that is divorce is the consequence of the fall and of man's sin. I, I got that part. But I think when Jesus says that it has come about as the result of your hardness of heart, I think what he's saying is it's your sin, your corruption and polluting of God's purposes and revelation that has fueled the flames that lead to more and more divorce. Divorce is merely permitted and never commanded. I know that there are circumstances, at least as I read the scriptures, there are circumstances, serious though they may be, there are some few circumstances which may legitimately justify a divorce. But I do not know of one situation where I have yet, I have said up to this point, therefore God commands you to get a divorce. He does not. He may permit it, but he doesn't command it. There's a world of difference. You remember, that's in the subtleties of the interchange 
where Jesus says, well, what did Moses command you on this point? Well, Moses permitted us, right? That's a critical difference. Okay, divorce is permitted rarely, not globally, not generally. It is permitted in rare circumstances, not common ones, as I understand the teaching of Scripture. And bottom line is, the exception must never become the rule. That's why Jesus doesn't put the exception clause in every time he says it. Because there's a way in which you begin to think in terms of the exception rather than the rule. And Jesus is saying, I want to talk about the ideal. I want to talk about where we should strive for, what God's original intent is. And you see this as outside of that, occasioned by sin. It's not the ideal and it's not, therefore, the rule. Connecting the dots on divorce. Do you notice how Jesus does this? He goes back and he starts connecting the dots all the way from Genesis all the way to the present by trying to show how what God has said and done in Genesis 2 relates to us. I should say 1 and 2. Relates to us today. He connects the dots. Marriage and divorce is a matter of the heart. Jesus said it's because of your hardness of heart. It's not something the law can fix, is it? Really, it's not something the law can take care of. It can try and, 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 uh, and confine it, restrict it, but it can't fix it. We go back to Mark chapter 7 where Jesus says, Defilement isn't from without, it's from within. <laughs> I, I can't wait to tell you what, how the Pharisees got down this trail to justify divorce, but I'll, I'll hold off for just a, a minute more. But it's a matter of the heart. Now, I want you to notice this, because, and again, you understand, I'm big on the connecting of the dots. Look at every one of the places, the four places where divorce is dealt with, and look at the connection between what Jesus says on divorce and the context in which it is found. I found this fascinating. When you look in Mark chapter 10, it ends... Chapter 9, the verse before this begins, ends by saying, have salt in yourselves and be at peace for one another. He's talking about leadership that is driven by humility that results in servanthood. Do you think that relates to marriage at all? <laughs> I think maybe it does. By the way, when we, are, when we move to our text uh, for next week, in, in chapter 10, allow the children to come to me and so on. We're back to that same issue of humility that Jesus is going to raise. Why are the disciples shooing the kids away? Because they haven't got it yet. They haven't connected the dots yet about what a servant's mindset of, of humility does in terms of who we want to have near us. Matthew. Matthew's, if you look at Matthew chapter 18, you'll follow what uh, 18, 1 through 14, you'll follow the very things that precede our text in Mark, but there's an insert. So from Matthew 18, 15 to the end of chapter 18, Matthew deals with two major subjects. 15 through 20, church discipline. Wouldn't it be interesting if our church discipline was preventative? 
not reactive, preventative in terms of marriages in our congregation. Where we took people aside and said, brother or sister, I see you heading for a train wreck. And we're going to have the whole church behind us in helping you deal with your marriage. Church discipline. And the rest of the chapter is on forgiveness. Well, I wonder what that could have to do with divorce. Forgiveness. How many times must I forgive? <laughs> if you're married, 70 times 7 isn't really a big number, is it? <laughs> yeah, some guy lives down the street. I can deal with that. Forgiveness. It's directly related. Matthew. Luke. Well, I want to just say this much for now. Money. You know how high money comes in terms of the cause or one of the root issues involved in divorce? You want to talk about divorce and prevention? Yeah, you need to go down the money trail, folks. That's where you find it. And here's one I left out of your notes, so you can put an F down there if you want. Matthew chapter 5. The text is actually verses 31 and 32, but the context is fascinating. Because when you start at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, Jesus talks about adultery. Oh, and by the way, friends, some rather interesting language occurs that might cause us to think there are dots to connect. If your right eye causes you to stumble, better to pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to stumble, better to cut it off. It's in the context of adultery, friends. Context of adultery. Now, when you get down to verses 33 through 37, Jesus is talking about vows. Ooh, now that's an interesting subject for married people. Now, I know what he says. He says you shouldn't have to take vows because your word ought to be your bond. You ought to mean what you say and say what you mean and do it. But when we get to Matthew 23, Jesus is saying, you know, it doesn't matter what you guys say. Here is what you are doing. Hypocrisy. Now, all I'm trying to say is when you look at the subject of divorce, it comes in a context that needs to be taken very seriously. So where did the Pharisees go wrong? I've been waiting for this, folks. Where did they go wrong on divorce and remarriage? I think that the Pharisees are far more liberal than you and I believe they were in practice. Now, just think about the Pharisees and, and, and at least the fact that they must have had a fair level of popularity. Would you not agree with me, John chapter 7? Jesus has come for the feast there, and, and people, they want to talk about Jesus, but many of them will not raise that subject because of a fear of the Pharisees. These guys are powerful. What gives them such power? What gives them such clout? What if there were an election for religious leaders would get those guys elected? I think their version of Pharisaism validated the very sinful things that people wanted to do. A. 
How did Jews feel toward Gentiles? Well, we can say it from the context of of Joseph uh, in Egypt when he says to his brothers or the writer says to us, the Egyptians loathed Hebrews. I take it they weren't really too fond of them. So when Paul starts talking, or Jesus in Luke 4 and Paul in, 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 the, in the Acts 22 says, I've been sent to the Gentiles for their salvation, the Jews come unraveled. Pharisaism gave you documentation and validation to be prejudiced and to not be in contact in any way with Gentiles. That's what they wanted, folks. That's what they wanted. Uh, when you think about uh, divorce and remarriage, the real issue, Jesus says, is if one divorces illegitimately and remarries, it is called adultery, right? Pharisaism, by its way of interpreting the law, validated... No, no, it legalized adultery. Pharisaism legalized adultery. See, you could go around and and have all kinds of illicit relationships, but when Pharisaism made easy divorce and easy remarriage, now you have the appearance of legitimacy, don't you? Well, I we I married. Here's here's you know, we're married. Look at this. We're married. Jesus says, um no, when one leaves their wife and marries another, it's adultery. They legalized adultery. They're softer than we thought. How do they pull that off? Well, one, their, uh, their emphasis on rules and traditions. See, Jesus said to him in Mark chapter 7, your traditions trump Scripture. They weren't nearly as interested in what God had to say in Genesis <laughs> as they were about what they said on the subject, what their rules said. And, and, and then you get to this next thing of technicalities. Technicalities are just occasions for loopholes. My friends, if you and I ground out the discipline of reading through one of Congress's laws, you would vomit at the sight of all of the technicalities which are specifically written in for somebody's personal gain. It's there. Technicality does not lead to control. It leads to loopholes. And that's what this system had done, in my opinion. They ignored God's original intent and design. They took advantage of the flexibility of terms, like that word indecency, and stretched it to ways, to interpretations that were illegitimate. And they used holiness, here it is, they used holiness as the pretext for divorce. See, it's one thing, it, well, it's their line in the road. I, I love that expression, it comes out of Proverbs. The line in the road is my compelling reason to not do what I don't want to do. I'd go to work, honey, but there's a lion out there standing in front of the car. Well, obviously, you can't go get in the car and go to work if there's a lion there. Their lion in the road is purity. And so when Deuteronomy says there's some matter of 
indecency. Can't you see? The old Pharisee ears are flapping. Because that means if I can find indecency, I've got my leap loophole, I've got my divorce, and I've got my new wife. There it is. Validating. Oh, I didn't tell you. Do you know what the word is translated in the King James Version? In both uh, Deuteronomy 24.1 and 23.14. Oh, come on. Where, where's Ronnie Calkins when I need him in the King James Version? Uncleanness. A matter of uncleanness. Can't you see a Pharisee just saying, Oh, uncleanness, I couldn't possibly. I can't stay in this relationship. It defiles me. And now, purity has become the pretext for my immorality. That, I think, is what Jesus is saying, especially in Luke chapter 16 and in Matthew 23. You guys talk a good fight, but the reality is it stinks. So what can we learn from the error of the Pharisees? One is we have to go, like Jesus did, to Scripture first. In fact, I would say we need to go to Scripture only. I cannot tell you of all the years that I've had some involvement with marital breakups, but what I have consistently said to people whose marriage was in trouble, be very careful about the advice that you accept because most of the advice you get from Christians will be wrong. I've never had occasion to waver on that. Some of the worst counsel in the world comes from well-meaning Christian friends who suddenly can't find their way in the Bible to a biblical precedent and a biblical principle. And, and so it's, it's like, well, I wouldn't put up with that. Well, that's interesting. When Paul says to slaves who are being beaten unjustly, you ought to submit to your masters. And then he says, in like manner, you wives. We got some thinking to do, folks, about what God says is our excuse for marital breakup. So do we let our culture drive our decisions? Do we start at the beginning and find the ideal? Do we always live in terms of the ideal rather than the exception? The ideal ought to be the rule, not the exception in Scripture. And sometimes there are exceptions. Do we let some twisted view of piety become our excuse for immorality? I was thinking about this, and I guess I want you to really think about this too. I don't want to get too specific, but I'd like to suggest that one of the things, I think the key thing that marked out a Pharisee was separation. Was it not? I would say to Christians today, be very careful about your view of separation. Be very careful. If you have a distorted view of what the Bible says regarding separation, it may well validate sin. Now, God's put us in an unclean, impure, fallen world. 
And we can go fortress ourselves off if we like. And there are some things we cannot be a part of. But we better be very careful when we separate ourselves in ways that God does not direct. That's what the Pharisees were doing. Separating themselves from their wives in the name of holiness. Last point. Are we more concerned about appearances or reality? For some of you, maybe you've been squirming a little bit through this whole thing on divorce, and I know it may raise painful memories, but what about those of us who have never been through a divorce? What are our marriages like? Is it like a whitewashed sepulcher where we put on the smiley faces and we hold our wife's hand when we walk through the door at church? put our arm around her on the pew and then go home and live a life which is a repudiation of what our Bible says about marriage. Being one flesh and being one is not just hyperbole. It is a reality. And if there is anything keeping us from the unity we should have, then we better come to terms with it. One last thing. Those words that we get from Hebrews chapter 13. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Are those not the most beautiful words in all the Bible for Christians? (laughs) He's not going to divorce us. He's not going to leave us. Oh, he may give us some grief. (laughs) But we are secure in him. I believe that ought to be reflected in our marriages. Father, thank you for this text. I pray that if there are things that I have said that have been overstatements or understatements, that your spirit might somehow uh, make corrections in the hearts and minds of those here, that they may see from Scripture more clearly, but that they may obey you. May none of my words be interpreted or applied in a way that They would be an excuse for sin. Father, you are a holy God. We are to be separate from the corruptions of this world, but we are also to be a witness, to be salt.